The last page has been turned on my most recent read, and I'm enjoying another cup of tea because my studio still feels just a little bit too much like a fridge for my liking, but nothing is going to change there until the summer because it's north-facing. Why couldn't it be south-facing? I know it's not cold out, but sometimes it is much colder inside, and I can say that having been out for a walk this morning. Yes, I've actually been outside of my flat. I try and talk about a different type of book every once in a while, and I think that this week I have pulled another winner out of the bag, literally, because I only received my hardback copy of this book in a mini haul this week. If you follow me on Instagram, you may have already seen the book on my feed as I both started and finished it on Friday night. I love books, seriously love books that I can read in a single sitting. And I found a few in the last couple of weeks that I'd literally just pick up, open and devour in a few hours. So join me today as we battle through the peaks and troughs with a woman getting used to the idea of divorce when she'd only just started to grow accustomed to being married, as I talk about the debut novel from a Schitt's Creek writer, Monica Heisey. Yes, we're all really good, actually. So here I am, no spoilers, opinion-filled and ready to roll, all of which means it's time for the latest episode of Being Bookish, I'm your host, Ray, self-confessed bookworm, introvert, hermit, long-term depression sufferer, and ex-coffee addict. Join me on my journey through my ever-growing to-be-read pile and enjoy the latest of my 100% spoiler-free book reviews. This week's book is all too real. Marriage, divorce, dead-end jobs and life are all part of the journey I will be navigating and perhaps it will get a little bit real. So light a few candles or perhaps just switch on that reading lamp because a bit of atmosphere is always a wonderful accompaniment to a reading session. Get yourself a fresh cup of something hot or a glass of something chilled, depending entirely on when you're listening and your preference, of course. And let's get started. I feel like when you get a divorce, everyone's wondering how you ruined it all. What made you so unbearable to be with? If your husband dies, at least people feel bad for you. Maggie's marriage has ended just 608 days after it started. But she's fine. She's doing really good, actually. Sure, she's alone for the first time in her life, can't afford her rent, and her obscure PhD is going nowhere. But at the age of 29, Maggie is determined to embrace her new status as a surprisingly young divorcee. Soon she's taking up sadness hobbies and getting back out there, sex-wise, oversharing in the group chat and drinking with her high-intensity new divorced friend Amy. As Maggie throws herself headlong into the chaos of her first year of divorce, she finds herself questioning everything, including, why do we still get married? Did I fail before I even get started? How many night burgers until I'm happy? Maggie has been married to John for a grand total of 608 days when the pair, who had been together for 10 years, decided to divorce. 
Unfortunately for all concerned, though it seems as though Maggie is living in the land of denial when she first decides against telling anyone what's going on, and then gives the impression that it's all okay. From the outset, it's pretty clear that things aren't all A-OK. Maggie has a very small but close friend group, but as much as they are supportive of her and the choices she makes, it's as though they are initially enabling her to hide her head in the sand and carry on as though nothing's changed. At the start, the fact that they are rallying, rallying around her, protecting her from her pain, is exactly what's needed. But then she starts to expect it while they're able to move on. Maggie is living on midnight burgers, which are basically burgers with pickle and a relish from a nearby takeout. She's finding it hard to sleep, thus eating the midnight burgers at 4am, and her work is suffering. But that's just the beginning. While on the surface, it looks as though she's continuing to live, seeing friends, doing her job, spending money she really doesn't have. Beneath it all, she's sending lengthy emails to her absent husband, and this initially made me think that the invisible John had actually died. However, John is very much still a part of the living world. He just wants nothing to do with Maggie. While Maggie is finding it hard to move on, John has taken their shared cat, Janet, his share of the marital furniture, and carried on living. He has cut Maggie out of his life as though she was never there, and it is this, I think, that she is having problems coming to terms with. She is wallowing, and while that may sound cruel, she seems unwilling or perhaps unable to take the necessary steps to dig her way out of the situation. Having discovered from a kindly divorce lawyer that the couple needs to be apart for a year from the date they declare their intention to formalise their separation, well, that's a sentence and a half, Maggie gets the ball rolling and this is the moment where reality seems to sink in. Having heard nothing from John, not even an acknowledgement of her divorce email, her work begins to suffer. She starts to take her friendships for granted and she sets down a very destructive Tinder dating path that, at times, I worried she wouldn't come back from. All the while, she is still joking about her situation, but there is something that feels almost like gallows humour about the way she is talking. And this is something that one of her more serious dates, Simon, notes when they split. Maggie is sinking in a morass of self-pity and not only does she alienate her close friends who start to exclude her from anything that she could possibly ruin, but she also ends up causing injury to Maris, her employer and temporary landlord. She is so absorbed in her own misery that she doesn't seem to realise there are other people suffering. She can't see the pain that others are in, all the while she is doing her best to deny that there is anything wrong with her. Drink poorly chosen sexual experiences and a chance at happiness all contribute to the lowest point in her life. But they do say that the only way is up when you reach that point. And this book seems to highlight that pretty well. I will probably say this a few times, but this book is a roller coaster. Divorce is one of the most stressful events that can happen to an adult and it can trigger others. Maggie views her experience through a strangely sardonic eye, almost detached from the events that trigger the initial event, which she uses a list to examine. Lists are something that appear throughout the book. They're her thing, whether they're accounting for her web search history, the things said to her by her therapist, or the reasons why her marriage broke up. 
It seems there is no real cause in this case, just a collection of them. And this lack of ability to pinpoint the thing that she could have fixed makes it all the harder for her to come to terms with what has happened. If there was no infidelity, what made this couple that was seemingly happy for nearly 10 years break apart? Funny thing is, I have a cousin who was with her boyfriend for nearly a decade. They got married and I think their marriage lasted just over a year before they divorced. Not a good thing. And I think it was the pressure of the idea of having children. But at the same time, he wasn't made for marriage and she really wanted it. I don't think that's the case in Maggie and John's instance, but just thought I'd throw that out there. The lists are actually a really interesting insight into what makes Maggie tick. And some of the search terms are those that many will key into their phones late at night when they're struggling to sleep. As well as the lists, though, there are chapters thrown in randomly, simply titled A Fantasy. These little stories that Maggie makes up are her subconscious. Little daydreams, like the ones everyone comes up with when they're trying to distract themselves from less pleasant tasks. I know that I have plenty of those. Oh, what would happen if I won the lottery? I'm just going to quickly look up and see what kind of house I could buy. There are many moments where Maggie's depressive state rears its head, and one that sticks out incredibly clearly is when she is with the therapist that John suggested they go to together. However, despite telling him about the appointment, he doesn't show up. While there, the therapist calls him, and what takes place can only be described as agonising. The pain that Maggie is feeling, and perhaps confusion at his resolute attitude when it comes to maintaining a definite distance between them, explodes when he categorically tells both her and the therapist that he doesn't want to hear from her, ever. One thing that this book really highlights that many seem to veer away from, not only with depression, but also self-destructive behaviour, is that you have to want to change. An acknowledgement that you're hurting people when you're already in mental agony will often change nothing if you're not ready to see it. There are many times in the book where you think, this is it, she'll change now. She's hurt her best friend, ruined a wedding, peed someone off, alienated someone who has helped her. But still, she continues down that path leading to disaster. Really Good Actually is a story of growth, of learning, of experiences, but it's also painful because it's a story of depression and forcing yourself to face what hurts you the most. This book won't, I acknowledge this, won't be for everyone, and I can't say that I enjoyed it because I don't think it's that sort of book. And it made me cry my eyes out a few times. However, it is well written. And though Maggie does come across often as self-serving and horrifically oblivious to the needs of the people in her life, you read to the end to find out if she learns the lessons she needs to become a better person. For the second week in a row, I am reviewing a relatively new release. However, there doesn't appear to be an embargo on reviews for this one, unlike Godkiller, so it's been a little bit easier to find opinions on the various review platforms. As a rule, I do tend to shy away from the newer releases as I feel that there is something to be said for looking at older books that have been gracing my bookshelves for years. 
But this was another book that took me by surprise. And I really wanted to talk about it before I read another few books. And the finer points were dulled by perimenopausal brain fog. And if you're there, you know what I mean. Anyway, less of that. Let's get on with the reviews. As you know, I like to provide a balanced perspective when it comes to the books I look at. And while my opinion will not change from what it is, taking a look at reviews from both ends of the spectrum can help. So before I give you my review, what did others think of Really Good Actually by Monica Heisey? Elizabeth didn't find this novel anything to write home about and only gave it one star. She said, Maggie, the protagonist, and her husband, John, split up after 10 years together and being married briefly. John leaves and takes most of their belongings, which he paid for, and their cat, Janet. I felt sorry for her for a minute, but she started grating on my nerves when she kept trying to contact John, despite no response from him. No response is a response. She has very little money. I logged onto my bank account. I had $200 in a credit card statement that was mostly burgers. But on the next page, confesses that she binge shops with her credit card. I bought an expensive dress online, realized the $350 I'd agreed to pay was a first installment, that the store expected to receive three more, sent a panicked email and got my money back. WTF, this woman is in her late 20s and is completely immature and irresponsible. She is addicted to her phone and dating apps and has a particularly cringy night out with her group of friends where she awkwardly and unsuccessfully tries to make conversation twice about Simon, the guy she is seeing, once about sex and the other a lame story about a magic trick. It was painful to read. Maggie's life is a train wreck and I was skimming large chunks of text the closer I got to the end. There were some funny lines, but that was not enough to redeem this book for me. This book is relatively new, having only been released on the 17th of January. As with last week's book, God Killer, there are not as many reviews available online, either positive or negative. As I have said before, if I wanted to get a larger collection of reviews to look through, I could have waited a few months to review this. But I wanted to post my immediate reaction, and I guess that's the same for those who reviewed the book on Goodreads and Amazon over the last week and a half. There were 722 reviews on the site, with a relatively even balance between all five-star rating options. I did find it interesting that the book seemed to have garnered a far more average score of three stars, with the overall score for the book being 3.35 out of 5, from a total of 3,318 ratings. Ashley enjoyed the book as much as you can enjoy a book that covers this sort of subject matter. She rated it five stars on Goodreads and 4.75 using her personal rating system. Her view was... A solid 4.75 stars for me, maybe five stars if I think about it longer. Really Good actually covers a lot of deep topics through a lens of, at times, uncomfortable relatability and laugh-out-loud humour. We follow Maggie, a 29-year-old academic who is going through a divorce from the man she spent the majority of her romantic life with up until that point. It doesn't help that in the split, he took their cat with him. I found the writing of the book to be pretty fantastic. It was so funny from start to finish, and even the unlikable parts, of which there are quite a few of our main character, were tolerable to me because I wanted to see if she would succeed. 
I thought the commentary on these modern times, feminism and women's roles in relationships and society, were all clear-sighted and brutally honest. I thought Maggie was written as a beautifully, frustratingly complex main character that I all at once felt for and also wanted to shake some sense into. There are also some interesting takes on friendships and dealing with depression, anxiety and trauma that I thought were really important. What are healthy expectations of friends and work colleagues, etc., in situations such as these? What borders as toxic positivity? How does that reflect on how today's society handles depression and anxious people in a bigger sense? This is probably one of my favourite reads of 2022, and I think Monica Heisey did a wonderful job on it. It's sarcastic, biting, so funny and relatable for anyone in their late 20s, early 30s. It won't be everyone's five-star read, but it definitely was a close one for me. There's a lot to unpack when reading other people's reviews, and their ratings depend incredibly on multiple factors, depending greatly on the type of reader they are. I know that I have mentioned it before, but it's important when it comes to talking about my reasons for choosing particular books to read and review. I am a mood reader, which is why I tend to buy a lot more books than I read. I pick the books I'm going to read completely, depending on how I feel at that specific moment. And this week's choice was no different. Anyway, let's get to my thoughts on Really Good Actually by Monica Heisey. So here they are, completely spoiler-free and 100% honest. Did I like Really Good Actually? This is my second review of a new release this month, but I couldn't resist picking up and reading this book this week. Admittedly, the UK cover is not as colourful or creative as the one available in the US, but there is something appealing about it. The combination of bright orange and blue definitely stands out. And I have to be honest, despite always telling myself you can't judge a book by its cover, this is part of what influenced me to read really good actually this week, rather than any of the eagerly anticipated sequels I could have picked up. Seriously, I had three sequels arrive this week and I still picked this one up. The other influence was admittedly a work colleague who was talking about how much she'd heard about the book and really wanted to read it. Yep, I'm going to admit it now, I suffer from FOMO when it comes to books. For reasons why, see the whole emotional reader thing. I'm really happy to say that this book didn't disappoint. Did I occasionally have a moment where I cringed and wanted to give Maggie a quick clip around the ear? Absolutely. Sometimes she didn't seem to have the common sense that she should have been born with. Normally, if I struggle with a main character in the book, I struggle with the book as a whole or choose to focus on one of the lesser characters until I'm over and done with it and I can put it away and forget about it. On this occasion, I think that Maggie's self-centred behaviour and downright inability to accept that she was at least partially culpable for the situation she was in and seemed to be struggling to pull herself out of made the book that much more readable. I know that someone mentioned, oh, well, she was really irresponsible and she was spending. One thing I will say, and though it's only briefly touched on in the book, significant studies and my own personal experience show that irresponsible spending is actually a side effect or significant indicator of depression. 
that's why I try and temper my spending when it comes to books. But I do have a history of irresponsible spending and I no longer have a credit card. There were times when Maggie's self-destructive nature made me dread turning the page. Was she going to do something stupid? Was she going to end up hurt? In all the instances, that proved not to be the case. However, she was still so determined to bury her head in the sand, hiding away from the situation she was in, that she ended up alienating so many people who cared for her. Heisey's writing style was fascinating. There were chapters that felt like an excerpt from Maggie's diary titled A Fantasy. Then there were random lists of things that were in her Google search history or that people had asked her. All of these on their own would have made little to no sense. In fact, had I seen these as an extract from the book, it would have encouraged me to read something else. But strangely, they made sense when the book was read as a whole. I've already said it, but Maggie as a character is unlikable. But at the same time, I was rooting for her to get her act together, to finally figure out what she wanted and where she needed to be, and everything that she should do to get there. I needed her to be less self-destructive. The point where she reaches rock bottom, having hurt everyone in her life and pushed so many people away that you sort of start to believe she is the one responsible for the divorce that started her downward spiral, is the second where my tears started. I'm not sure if they were cathartic, mourning the relationships that never were in my own life, or just feeling incredible sorrow for the pain that Maggie is feeling in that particular moment. All in all, I was surprised at how much I felt when I closed the book at midnight. Yeah, it literally was midnight. There was a little bit of relief that I was done, but I also felt emotionally wrung out because it was a roller coaster of riotous feelings. Will I read more by Monica Heisey? I have actually watched a few things that Heisey has had a hand in, and so have you, if you've watched seasons three and four of the droll comedy Shit's Creek, or season three of Working Mums, where she was a member of the writing team. She has a way with words, and there is no denying that. And her humour is definitely more Stevie than David, if I'm going to use a Shit's Creek comparison. Maggie is who I imagine Stevie would be if she were constantly verging on the edge of a nervous breakdown in the middle of New York. I found Heisey's writing style creative and different. Her lead protagonist is almost unlikable because she refuses to accept things as they are, but also because she's incredibly selfish. Yet at the same time, you can't bring yourself to want her to fall apart despite all the things she's destroying in her journey of self-discovery. I think that this is quite clever, as Maggie is someone I definitely wouldn't want in my life. Making an unlikable character likeable takes some skill. I think that I would probably pick up another book by her because I found the writing style different, clever, witty and unusual, all of which made it somewhat intriguing. If you're looking for something like this or you loved this and want something else, then you'll love these. Two for two in the I don't normally read this genre stakes. Last week I was trying to find more cosy adult fantasy to recommend and this week I am looking through my shelves for books to recommend that you would like if you enjoyed really good actually. I have to be honest, I would probably say that though this is fiction, Katie Wicks's memoir Delicacy 
which is definitely not fiction, has a very similar tone. Though certainly not as self-centred by any stretch, the pain of discovery of life's disappointments and a struggle to find yourself are definitely themes that come through in that book, which was a five-star read for me in 2022. And I will post a link to the episode where I reviewed it in the notes below. Another memoir, and one that is on my TBR for this year, is Dolly Alderton's Everything I Know About Love. At its heart, really good actually, is about recovery from the pain that life flings at you when you least expect it. Dolly Alderton's memoir is all about the slings and arrows of disastrous dates, life, love and everything else. It's not been a bad week this week when it comes to books. I am on book four of February and managed to finish book 21 of January just before the clock struck 12. I'm finding that though I have read a few clunkers this year, it has overall been a good one so far. Yeah, we're only in February. I have read two books that I felt deserved a five-star rating, though that may change when I reflect on them later in the year. And despite my family imposing a no books for your birthday ban on me, I have purchased a stunning 12 books since payday just five days ago. I have read three of them already and enjoyed them all. So bonus. (laughs) Despite having made a nice dent in my bank balance already this month, I am still looking out for books to add to my wish list and my physical bookshelf. So if there is anything on your TBR that you think I would love, I am not averse to getting more books, so definitely pass your recommendations on to me. You can send me an email at notbeforecoffeepodcast at gmail.com or DM me on Twitter or Instagram and I will be sure to check your recommendations out. Don't forget, if you want to hear about new releases, other books I've read and keep up with my reviews, you can sign up for my newsletter on my website, beingbookish.co.uk. Oh, and if you haven't seen it yet, I now have TikTok. I have been adding a few unpacking videos as new books arrive. There are a couple of book hauls up there and even a few mini, as in like 90 second reviews, me talking about a book I've just finished. You can find me there at Being Bookish Reviews. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you hear, why not share it with your friends and family? And please post a star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any of the other podcatchers where you listen. It really helps to share the podcast, as it were. You can follow me on Twitter at being underscore bookish and on Instagram at being bookish pod. Or you can check out my website, beingbookish.co.uk. Well, I've got a lot to get ready for next week and a new book is always calling me. So until next time, this is me saying farewell. Farewell.